Welcome to These Vibes Are Too Cosmic, the podcast. I'm Brian Krause, and my co-host is Stevie Bergman. What you're about to listen to is a recording of our live radio show, edited for podcasting by our chief podcaster, David XMA. For copyright reasons, this recording is missing the eclectic and wonderful music we played during the original show, but you can hear it all by streaming it on our website at thesevibesaretoocosmic.com. Or, in the future, you can listen live on WPRB Princeton 103.3 FM, or their web stream at wprb.com. The show airs every Tuesday at 5 p.m. EST. Special thanks to WPRB and the Princeton Council for Science and Technology for helping make this podcast possible. FYI, all the great music you're about to hear was composed and performed by Jeff Snyder. Today is the ecology show. I have with me in the studio Justine Atkins, a PhD student in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology here at Princeton. And uh, we're going to get going talking about all sorts of really interesting um, concepts about protected areas, about how you do simulations in ecology, about how we learn about animal decision-making, all of this stuff. So welcome to the program, Justine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. So you are an ecologist. Can you tell me what that is for people that have no idea? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, there's all sorts of types of ecologists, but in general, um, ecologists study the um, relationships between animals, plants, and uh, the environment and try and understand how... um, the, bi- the communities form, um, what are the relationships between different species, how do they depend on one another, how do they compete with one another, and uh, what impact that then has on the wider ecosystem as a whole. Right, okay. So what is your, how did you get involved in ecology in your previous education? Like what led you up to now? So um, I started studying science in high school, I guess, and then um, in, as an undergrad um, ba- back in New Zealand where I'm from. And um, I just became really interested in understanding animals in particular, um, their behavior and how they, um, how they make decisions about what they do in their environment, why they do the things that they do, um, how they interact with one another socially, um, as well as, as competitively and antagonistically. Um, and then the further I got into to ecology, the more I um, realized how important ecology actually is for understanding um, particularly our world today and the vast amounts of changes that are occurring so rapidly. I think it's um, ecology is a really great tool that we can use to try and help um, inform conservation policy and ensure that um, the rate at which we're losing our, our biodiversity and, and ecosystem function isn't um, can be actually diminished and we can try and pull back uh, from some of the, the, the mass extinction ev- event that a lot of people say we're right in the middle of at the moment. Right. It makes yeah. your job sound extremely important. Well, I mean, when you say it like that, it does. But um, I think what we do on a day-to-day basis certainly doesn't have these immediate flow-on effects. But um, it, d- it does, I guess, help you feel like you're contributing in some small way rather than throwing your hands up in despair or something. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's how science in general works is mm-hmm. we, you read the newspaper and you find some giant discovery that has been made in science. But really, that's the culmination of 20 years of a lot of small steps by a lot of people. So I'm sure in ecology it's the same. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we certainly hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, so you mentioned in that spiel you're, uh, you're interested in animal decision-making. So can you tell me what you mean by that? I mean, what is an animal doing? It's just eating and finding a place to go to eat. I mean, what do you mean by decision-making? Yeah, I mean, that's at a, at a very simple level. That's basically what they, uh, that sums it up pretty well. So 
Um, I mean, we all know that we make decisions um, on a daily basis all the time about everything that we do, and they're informed by um, our memories of the past, how uh, we're feeling at that moment, and what we might be wanting to do or achieve in the future. And um, it's, um, I'm really interested in understanding how, to what extent animals are, are the same, or whether it's just driven by very um, simple rules about, um, you know, I, I need to eat this much per day to carry on, and that's something that they just know intrinsically and carry on doing, or if they're actively um, making dynamic decisions, so changing what they do on, um, on a daily basis, uh, how much they eat, where they go to eat, who, they, um, who else they interact with within their species or um, with other species, and actually trying to figure out if there's more of a, a dynamic decision-making process going on than these very uh, simple behavioral rules. Right. I mean, it makes me sort of think of this, you know, there's this idea that humans are like so different than the rest of mm -hmm. animals and the decisions we make, you know, I ask you, why are you, why did you go to a movie last night or something? And you'll say, well, I heard about it from my friends. I was really interested in, you know, there are all these factors that mm -hmm. I had enough money to go to a movie to, last night. There's all, all so many things that you considered to make that decision. And we look at animals and it's just like, well... I didn't go to the north for a while for food, so I went to the north there. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I think we view it in a very different way, right? Right. And in some ways, that I mean, it, it is true that obviously humans uh, make far more complex decisions than um, a lot of animals. But I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that um, within animal populations, not all individuals um, are responding to certain changes or perturbations in the same way. And one reason that might be the case is because they're actually making very more complex decisions than we realize and actually considering um, more inputs than, than just one simple factor at a time. Sure. So what kind of tools do you use to study this? I mean, how can you zoom in to wonder, to really learn what's important to an animal when it's making a decision? So the particular um, area or behavior that, that I'm interested in looking at is uh, movement behavior. And um, in part, it's because of the the huge growth and the amount of um, information and data that we have on on animal movement due to the um, the rise in GPS technology and um, satellite information. So there really is a lot of um, a lot of data out there. <coughs> Excuse me, and um, it can be collected pretty rapidly. So it's a really great resource. And uh, movement behavior, on top of that, is also just one of the most fundamental behaviors of any animal. They do it for everything. I mean, so do we. Um, and so firstly, we, um, I use the, that kind of data, GPS information, um, that basically tells you where an animal is um, at a certain point in time, and you can change the interval at which you get that information. So it could be every five minutes or every 15 minutes, every hour, once a day, once a month. It depends on the question that you want to um, ask, how fine a scale you have that, um, that data coming in. And then um, by using that, you can look at you can actually just overlay it on the um, like an environmental data layer that tells you the different characteristics of the habitat that that animal was in um, at those different times. And you can look at the association um, of each individual animal with different habitat characteristics and at, a, at the first stage just to try and understand which um, types of habitat they're more commonly associated with and which things that they, they prefer. Right, sure. So, I mean, it seems really, um, so you have to do a lot of data analysis in order to sort of map out where the animal's going, and then I guess you have to make some leaps to figure out why some area might be important. I mean, maybe they're just going there to drink water, maybe there's some more complicated reason why they're doing that. I mean, 
what's the next level of analysis that you do once you have this data? So, yeah, so that's the kind of thing that I'm just starting to work on now um, as a grad student. So um, I'm working with some collaborators who have already been looking at the um, sort of statistical associations that I just described. Um, and then I am hoping to use that sort of information to try and basically parameterize um, individual-based models of, of animals to say what kinds of areas they prefer and um, try and input that into their decision-making process. So each time they make a movement in um, a simulation model, they will sort of consider all the different input, inputs that are around them based on the information that we've gathered from the GPS data and then make a decision and then um, I can make changes to that environment. That I that I know because I'm you know specifically manipulating them myself rather than looking um, out in the field, and um, by doing that I can see exactly how much their decisions change given a certain change in the environments. So you can try and get um, at quantifying exactly how important different environmental components, as well as other things like social. Um, components have on their decisions. Wow, okay, so really what you're trying to do is you have a simulation that, uh, I mean, you study antelope behavior, right, to make this picture more concrete? Yes, that, that's what I'm working on at the moment. So if, if you imagine a group of antelopes that have been moving around and we've surveyed where they've been every five minutes for however long, mm -hmm. several days, uh, and then you're going to, you have a, some simulation that you've made, you've programmed, that you you basically weigh what important things what what the important factors are to the antelopes mm -hmm. and then you're going to toggle with the weights maybe you say like well it's really important that all the antelopes are drinking or really important that they go somewhere to rest or something mm -hmm. uh and then you see if your map of where the antelopes go on your computer looks like the map where the antelopes have gone in real life is that sort of yeah that's i mean i haven't gotten to the stage of actually making the simulation yet i'm still working through um some sort of prior analysis to try and make the, the simulation itself more um, more tractable because they can be uh, pretty highly computationally intensive and and sure. just um, quite challenging. So I'm trying to get as much information as I can to minimize the number of, of different variables that I'd be testing and changing uh, right. in the simulation itself. That seems like such a difficult task. I mean, I'm a physicist, so the simulations <laughs> I'm, I'm used to are like an electron's moving around and it bounces against another electron, and we know very well what those the equations are what variables are important right. in that process but when you're talking about antelope decision making i mean there's so many variables you could be considering so what sort of things are you weighing right now yeah i mean you're exactly right there's a lot of uncertainty so we do try and use things like probability distributions and things to get at uh, what's the most likely thing that, that they would do um and the things that that i'm looking at are habitat characteristics first of all uh but then also the um the energetic state of the individual, so how hungry they are or how much body fat they have, so whether or not they're going to prioritize uh, foraging over avoiding being eaten by a predator, um, also how much they consider the um, behavior of other individuals, so other individuals of the same species or, as I said before, maybe they're trying to avoid predators. So it's those sorts of interacting factors. Mm-hmm. So when you're... so. Are you actually the one that's like putting tags on these animals, or how? I, I, I don't even know how that works. You rely on different groups to do that for you, right? So for this particular project, um, I haven't done that so far. I'm hoping to be involved in that this summer. Um, so they have the the project involves um, Rob Pringle, who's a professor in um, in my department, and um, one of his former postdocs, uh, Ryan Long, who now works as a professor at the University of Idaho. And for the last two years, they've been 
um, putting GPS collars on uh, these antelope in, um, in a national park in Mozambique. And um, so I, they already have that data and they're just um, working on the analysis of that at the moment. And then I am using that, but this summer we're gonna try and um, collar some more individuals. So basically it involves, uh, depending on the size of the individual, either uh, using a tranquilizer dart from a car or from a helicopter, um, to sedate the animal and then um, basically going in there and taking a bunch of different measurements to get at um, their body condition and their um, age and um, also their pregnancy status if they're a female and, um, and then atta attaching the collar and then um, they have this really amazing um, method where they can automatically reverse the tranquilization so mm. it uh, tries to minimize the impact on the animal. Wow, really nice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, how many animals do you have that are collared at any given time? So, um, for the last couple of years, they've had uh, 30 individuals, so 10 of um, th each of three different species. And um, this summer, there's a f a several different projects that are going to be going on, but for the particular work that I'm doing, we're hoping to collar 16 um, individuals of one species, but there's a um, another grad student in our department who's looking at um, some other species, and I think they're hoping to collar at least ten or twenty individuals. And there's actually others working on um, on elephants as well, so they'll be collaring I think between five and ten elephants. Wow. Okay, <laughs> that's like crazy work. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It, it's very. I don't know how quite how they do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, is that the, so clearly, it's always one thing to set up your experiment. I mean, it takes a lot of work, and I'm sure you have to plan logistically how do we get a helicopter in order to, you know, and how do you find the herd of antelope that's going about. Uh, but then it's, you, the, it's a completely different process and probably a much longer scientific process for you to actually collect the data from the GPS collars and then analyze it. Yeah, I mean, the the collaring itself is, is challenging. I mean, I haven't, from what I haven't done it myself, but from talking with um, my collaborators from when they've done this in previous years, it's it's very challenging. But it, it does take a, maybe a couple of weeks at the most. Okay. Um, but you're you're out there all day, every day, uh, trying to find these animals and um, and make sure you don't scare them all away. And it, it can become pretty difficult. Uh, but but certainly the analysis then can be the longer process, and um, you do have to wait as well to to get enough information. I mean, um, we're trying to look at the long term. Um, behavior and habitat selection of these these antelopes so the more data we can get the better we basically just uh, they leave the collars on until the batteries die or they fall off the the individual or something happens to them so um, it can be a really a long process yeah for sure. right right okay so I guess I'm curious about you know you're you're using this tactic to zoom into uh, antelope decision-making in particular but there's a broader picture here, and you want to sort of know how that decision-making works and then how it relates to the uh, heterogeneity, the difference, the, the diversity, I guess, in the ecosystem as a whole, right? Yes, yeah. So, so how do you sort of, in the end, plan to tie your basic observations and computation to this broader picture? So that's, um, I guess, where the simulation modeling can be really helpful because um, we can actually model the environment explicitly and um, uh, give what we know in the environment that these animals are in at the moment and then simulate changes to that environment. So um, if they're, they're living in an environment with these very discrete habitat um, or foraging patches that are um, made up 
due to uh, termite activities. So you have a really high concentration of resources on, on termite mounds, and in between the termite mounds, it's um, much more sparse. So um, we can actually, in the simulation model, then change the, um, the distribution of these resources and see what effect that has, or you can uh, fragment the habitat, you know, put a, a wall, basically, or a fence that they, the individuals can't move through, or just take away a huge um, part of the habitat and see um, what effect that has on the, on the individuals as well. So I, th I guess that's the, the main um, thing that, that I'm hoping to do is try and understand how, understand the decision-making process at a um, fine enough level that you can then make predictions about what, well, what would happen, how would this population respond, given that we know they make decisions in this way, how would they respond to um, this particular change in their environment, so how, how can we best manage them um, in the future. I see. It's fascinating. So you're really so you're trying to match your predictions on the simulation now to real life when the real data that you see in the antelopes and then using the simulation to see uh, what happens if a farm pops up that uh, like they, they raise a lot of land that is really important to these antelopes and they have to move somewhere else. Then what sort of effects would that have on their collective behavior? Exactly. And uh, one thing that's particularly important in um in Mozambique and in a lot of um, savanna ecosystems is the increasing um, human population density near these areas. Um, so that's going to have a big impact on all the um, animals within these, these parks and reserves um, as humans and livestock that are associated with human populations kind of push more and more into these areas and that's going to change the environment. over the break about sort of this interesting thing in ecology, which is that most ecologists tend to pick an animal, it seems like. Like, Justine is focusing on antelope right now. And normally, it's not that we really need to understand everything about antelope. Antelope, like, like there's all these pressing questions about antelope behavior, but we're trying to answer more general questions about uh, animal decision-making in general. That's right? Right. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, how, like... Is there a chance that you'll switch over to some other similar animal or some other completely different animal at some point during your studies here or in your science future? Uh, how would that work? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that I will change uh, while I'm um, here doing my uh, PhD. That might be a little bit much, but we'll see, um, we'll see how we go. Um, but certainly um, I'm really interested in applying these sorts of, um, this sort of approach um, and, and hopefully the models that I developed to other systems, um, probably initially fairly similar um, types of species to uh, the ones on which the initial models are based. But um, as I was, I was saying in the break, I've actually worked previously a lot on um, different bird species. So um, I'm really interested in looking at um, this sort of approach in bird populations and trying to understand their uh, decision-making processes and things. So who knows? We'll see. But I'm certainly not... Um, tied to, to this one system for, for life at this stage. <laughs> sure. It's just a useful one to answer the question about collective decision-making that you're interested in. Sure. And they're, I mean, they're really cool as well. They're, they're really beautiful animals. So, and there's so many different species of, of antelope and, um, in the savannah ecosystems in Africa that they're a really great group to study because there's, they do so many different things and, um, 
have many many different behaviors but at the, at the same time they're all antelopes so they share you know a lot of things in common as well so it's really interesting to study um, right right absolutely Okay, so before the break, we mentioned a little bit uh, about the sort of global implications of your research, and that's that really in the end you'd like to apply what you learn about antelope behavior uh, to simulations where you sort of test the bounds of what they're used to. Maybe you take away something crucial from their environment or you fence them in. Uh, so you've written something on the High Wire Earth blog, which uh, Matt Grobis and Julio Herrera were here on our show a little bit previously to talk about this blog. It's an excellent sustainability blog here at Princeton, mm -hmm. where you sort of took this idea in your post about uh, protected areas and sort of some of the things you had learned or that you had been studying about um, antelope. And I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just, I'd like you to explain sort of this whole idea. Sure. So uh, protected areas are a really interesting um, concept in ecology and conservation <clears throat> in general. And um, they're closely related to my research because um, it, you really need to understand how animals, excuse me, <clears throat> are actually um, making decisions about which habitat they're going to, to use and how that's going to change over time or just during the space of one day. Um, and so we really need to understand those processes in order to build protected um, areas that are really actually going to protect uh, the species that we're interested in conserving. And um, I came across, I guess a few months ago, a special issue of um, a journal called the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society um, that focused on protected areas and actually tried to look at um, this idea that we have actually a really good um, amount of our terrestrial and marine ecosystem um, contained in protected areas, but they don't seem to be having the effect that um, that we that we've intended. Their biodiversity is by and large still declining very rapidly, and it, these protected areas don't seem to be providing the kind of buffer that they're designed to have. And um, the this journal presented a series of articles that was looking at why this isn't the case and trying to um, give a, a, a new methodology that would allow us to understand um, how protected areas can work effectively and why they might not be working effectively, um, or at least the way that we would expect them to work. Right, sure. So, I mean, it seems like intuitive, like, well, for example, fish in the ocean, they're being really decimated by fisheries and people trying to fish them out. Uh, so we're just going to eradicate fishing in this one little box, and that way the fish there will thrive and it'll be fine. But you're saying that this idea is sort of too simplistic. It doesn't really work very well. And certainly in, in some cases, it's not to say it doesn't work at all, and actually fish uh, or marine reserves are pretty can be a, quite a good example of, of protected areas that do work uh, very well for the, for the species within them. Um, but the idea is more that... Um, there's been a lot of setting aside of, of protected areas without actually trying to to quantify the impact that those areas will have. So the way that they're, um, they've been monitored is that you just set aside an area and you look at how um, the species composition changes over time and does the diversity increase, do the populations of the species that are there increase um, um, over time, rather than actually looking at what would have happened in this area had there not been a protected area put in as well. Because although you may be seeing um, increases in populations and diversity within the protected area, it may be the case that that would have happened regardless of whether or not the area was protected. And it could just be 
environmental fluctuations um, that are occurring. And if you come back 10 years later um, to an area that you thought was being very effective and working really well, it may be the case that the environment's changed in such a way that those populations have started declining and the protection really wasn't the thing that was helping them in the first place. Right. So it sort of becomes this problem of we're asking the wrong questions when we ask, or we're, we're using the wrong methods when we ask, is our protected area working? Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't, we don't have a good way to tell if it's working or not. Exactly. And it's, it's sort of strange because that's something that in science, um, we really try and advocate for in all our studies is to try and understand, you know, the control method, what happens if we don't do anything um, so that we can have something to compare to what happens if we make this, uh, this experimental change. But the problem with uh, protected areas is that there's, you know, the need to conserve species is, is really urgent and the funds to do so is very limited. So um, conservation decision makers are basically forced to just very rapidly, you know, big, some land is donated and they're just designated as a protected area and hope that that's going to be the best for the species that are there um, rather than setting aside money to actually monitor what would happen um, in an area that's protected versus a very similar area that's not protected and see, try and actually quantify the impact that an area would have to try and uh, maximize the benefit that you can get from it and also minimize the, the negative impacts of the um, protected area as well. And so it's a really hard, it's a really hard issue. I mean, no one's going to say, you know, oh, you know, you shouldn't protect that area. I mean, if you're interested at all in, in conservation and biodiversity, you're not going to say that we shouldn't have a protected area. But at the same time, we do need to try and understand, I think, first, how these areas actually work and what benefits they actually bring um, before we kind of just continue down a path that might not actually be working as well as we'd hope. Right. So, I mean, is there ever the problem that you're really trying to conserve and protect a very small or limited ecosystem that really is diverse, say like a patch of the rainforest, uh, but then it's really difficult to even have a similar control group. Like maybe there's not really a similar patch of rainforest outside of the the reserved area that would really be a good control for you. So, and if there were, you'd want to protect it too. I guess that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So the control doesn't exactly come naturally to um, to protected areas, and it's something that uh, conservationists don't really have the funding or the time to to worry about. So it's really a, a role that um, conservation scientists should be focused on, um, and actually be putting their their research into. Um, understanding how different conservation policies and actions work and what works better and what doesn't. Um, there was a really interesting analogy um, about this that I read and, and um, actually referenced in this um, blog post that talks about how the medical industry has the system set up pretty well. So they have, you know, the doctors and things that who prescribe the medications and give the, the treatments and they monitor their patients and how they're going. But then you have this whole industry of, of public health and um, pharmaceutical research that actually looks at creating, uh, looks at how these different policies or medicines or vaccination programs um, actually work and, and tries to inform um, doctors and, and I guess health policy in general on the best on the best practices. But that just really isn't in the case uh, for, for conservation. I think it's something that really should be and a, a lot of people do recognise that. It's just the next question you've got to ask is where's the money going to come from? So it's, right. it's challenging. Right, yeah. It's a really nice analogy because you might say, well, conservation is too important an issue. Like we don't have time to 
worry exactly. about control groups or anything. We just have to save as much as we can. But you could say the same thing about medicine. I mean, you know, we're trying to save lives here. So why waste all this time in the scientific process making sure that, you know, everything is done correctly? Well, it turns out that we do that. And it's good that we do that because it keeps medicine sort of medicines that aren't working effectively are kept off the shelves and medicines that are, we understand a lot more about them and side effects and everything. So it leads to much more informed practice, I think. So, I mean, I can see direct paths towards your research, your research sort of informing this process, at least about like, if you have a good model for antelope behavior, then you build a fence around them and we show, you can probably show what impacts that will have on their behavior and perhaps their population growth. Yeah, I mean, in theory, it's you can never say for certain, I guess, with um, with models exactly how closely what you're predicting is actually going to be what happens. But I think it gives you a better idea. And I think more than that, it also gives you um, an understanding of a system before you actually go into that system. So if you know that um, a species that have certain requirements or um, are of a certain size or um, act act in a certain way or have particular um, size social groups or that sort of thing, then you can already assume that based on what we know from um, these models that we've built, that those sorts of species tend to respond to um, their, this environmental change in this way. So you can kind of target in on specific aspects of um, the species and, and specific environmental changes rather than each time you go into a new system or work with a new uh, species, just starting from scratch and having to restart that process, which is very um, financially and also time-consuming. Right, of course, yeah. of course. So uh, in your blog piece on Highway or Earth, you mentioned a particular example of uh, a protected area that's doing really well as far as the sort of scientific uh, gauging how well it's doing, and that was La Selva in Costa Rica? Right, so La Selva's, um, I guess, it is it is a protected area, but the, the difference um, there is that it was set up for the purposes of scientific research. So it was set up with that in mind um, when this land was purchased and um, has been used, I think, since the 1950s um, for the purposes of um, ecological research. So they have, um, in the, over the years, they've purchased more and more land and the, the reserve um, has grown in size. And the great thing about um, La Selva is that, well, first of all, it's in Costa Rica, so it has this amazingly diverse ecosystem. Um, you know, tropical ecosystems are probably the most interesting in the world and there's a lot um a lot you can learn there um, but also they have different areas of the the reserve that were um either untouched primary forest or um what land that was once agricultural but now it has regrown into secondary forest um or also areas of different elevations different um access to to rivers and things like that so you have all these different environmental gradients that are known and quantified so you can um, actually actively test well, what's the impact of if we um, have agriculture on an area of land for, you know, 100 years. Um, how does that affect the bird community composition as comp- as compared to primary? From quantify that, and they've been able to do that really well. So it's it's definitely um, and it's it's kind of there are a, lo- a few other examples of areas like that as well where um, scientists or or large kind of I guess scientific uh, groups and collectives have um, raised the funds to purchase large areas of land and use them specifically for the purposes of research. And that's, those are really great. And those are, I think, the areas that we can kind of focus on first. Right. So it seems like several things have really come together in a case like this. First of all, 
from the onset, they have this scientific mindset that they're going to study uh, these different changes and quantify as much as, that they, as much as they can. And second, uh, of course, you don't, if you're a scientist and you're interested in conservation, you don't want to raise an acre of rainforest just for studying it. I mean, you would never do that. So in a way, it's fortunate that they sort of had these areas that had been raised previously and they knew about that and then could study the growth afterwards. But third, and probably the most important part, is you said that they were able to raise money uh, in order to buy this, to start it together as a collective. So it seems like that's the main part that's sort of lacking in a lot of, or at least some sort of funding for this sort of research as a whole. It's difficult, I guess, to get funding agencies and whatnot to actually provide you with that. So that seems, uh, I mean, are you, given, given the state of affairs right now, how optimistic are you about the future of like accurately scientifically studying these protected areas? I think um, I think I'm fairly optimistic. I think there is a, a shift um, that's been going on for a while now towards um, these kind of natural experiments um, and trying to focus um, funding efforts in, in these areas and really try and set aside um, large areas of land and, and national parks and things like that. Um, through and also, there's kind of a recognition that um, funding can come from all sorts of, of different sources. And these days, you have really um, large companies like like Google, for example, that um, are giving grants for all sorts of different things. And you really can um, kind of think outside the box and look for funding in places that you wouldn't necessarily have um, have previously. And that's becoming really useful. Um, so the the area that I um, will be working in in Mozambique is actually um, a natural experiment, I guess you could call it um, itself. It was a uh, Gorongosa National Park has been a national park in Mozambique for a very long time, and it used to be an extremely popular um, tourist destination many many years ago. Um, but during the the Mozambican Civil War, the park um, experienced a huge decline in all of its large mammal species because it was. Um, one of the bases for the rebel armies, and there was a, the increase in poaching was just astronomical during that time. Um, so now the park is in a process of recovery due to very generous um, funding from outside sources and also the Mozambican government. Um, and so it's it's really cool to watch h- how this park um, and how the species within it start recovering over time, and and um, what that actually looks like, and um, if it's the same as what it was previously, or if what they, that area has gone through in the la, in the um, course of twenty years, whether it's um, kind of coming back in a different way to what it was um, before the war. Right, absolutely. So uh, that's a sort of nice segue. I wanted to ask you just about the prospects for travel in your in your studies. I mean, sure. I'm sure that you have to do a lot of on field research and what that's like. Have you traveled so far in your previous work and all of this? Yeah, I think that's um, definitely one of my favorite parts about being an ecologist and, and certainly one of the things I love about um, being here um, at Princeton. It's a really fantastic place um, for doing ecological work, both in the U.S. and, and overseas. They have really great um, research stations in all sorts of places. Um, so previously, when I was in New Zealand, all my work was done um, done there. Basically, I traveled a little to some of um, the offshore islands around there, but... But no further than that. But uh, since I've been here in, in Princeton, uh, we went to um, the Amazon in Ecuador um, earlier this year for a course for um, grad students. And I spent uh, three weeks in Panama just um, earlier this year. And then this summer I'll be going to, to Mozambique. So it definitely involves a lot of travel. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. cool. It's so such a fun, just 
I mean, for your work, you get to see these places. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, I kind of have to pinch myself <laughs> a lot to realize. Yeah, I'm I'm very very lucky to be able to to go to these places, and it, yeah, it's uh, it's fantastic, and it's the best way I think to learn about these systems is to actually see them. Yeah. Rather than uh, read about them or hear about them anecdotally. Oh, of, course. of course, it's always firsthand experience that you really want. Mm -hmm. And so, when you are in these places, I mean, you mentioned earlier your professors that are. Uh, actively doing the coloring of the antelope, uh, it's a full-time job. I mean, they're all day searching for the herds and trying to find them without disturbing them and all of this. So when you are traveling and going to on these more uh, field research type travels, uh, what does your day look like? Is it that intense? Usually, I mean, when you're w looking, uh, working with wildlife, you kind of have to uh, be active when they are, I guess, and it depends on what you're working with. I mean, previously with birds, that meant getting up before dawn. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so it's usually it's pretty full-on because we can't be in the field all the time. I mean, we have to be here taking classes and teaching and, and other things. So uh, when we have this time in the summer, it really you really have to take advantage of it. So that means being out um, as much as possible all day, basically, from sunrise to sunset, I guess. Wow, yeah. it's. I mean, it's not as grueling as it sounds. There's a lot of fun times as well. <laughs> oh no! It's and it's, yeah, it's it's great work. I mean, I really enjoy it. So, yeah, excellent. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps up uh, what I was interested in talking about. Uh, thank you so much, Justine, for coming on. This has been such a nice interview. It's really interesting to hear about all your work and what you're. So, hope good luck in your summer travels and for the rest of your research here at Princeton. Well, thanks very much. It's been really great to to be on the show. Stevie is here with me. Hey. So, uh, yeah, what do, what do you got for us, Stevie? What are you going to talk about? So, you know, we're going to talk about a couple things. I, the first thing that's just, you know, a kind of quick, really fun thing uh, that I, that I like, saw on the Internet today uh, is there's this really great gif that's going around uh, that is kind of mind-blowing, and I stared at it for a little while before I kind of got... A little bit of an idea what was going on, and then I like Googled around and figured out what was really going on, which is there's this, there's this gif of uh, Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Indians sliding into second base. And as he's doing this really uh, beautifully executed slide, I must say, uh, his hat flies off, like right as he goes for the dive. And it flies off, and uh, he kicks it with his what it's his uh left foot he kicks it and the main camera the camera that is on him for this to take this gif uh is like pretty clearly shows that he kicks the hat very strongly backwards and then he slides into second and seemingly out of nowhere the hat comes down and hits him in the head and like you know it it, it 
it goes again and again, and you're just kind of staring at it being like, how the heck did that happen? I mean, my first thought was like, well, somebody clearly picked that up really quickly and threw it at him. Uh, but that's actually not what happened at all. It's both a trick of camera angles. So I described to you what's happening. So he, he dives in, he kicks his hat with his heel backwards, and then it comes back and hits him in the head. It seems to be this crazy boomeranging thing. But, like, if you further inspect it, the camera is a little off kilter, and it follows him as he goes. So there's a really uh, interesting kind of simple physics thing going on that we've all seen before so basically he's moving and his hat is moving with him and so his hat has the same horizontal velocity uh x direction velocity that he that he does and then when it kind of flies off of his head the wind catches it and he strikes it with his foot and now it looks like it's going backwards but actually that's a trick of the angle of the camera and the fact that the camera is following ramirez as he's going so actually if the camera was dead on he would like you would see him basically kicking his hat almost straight upwards which is a really crazy thing and like first off is that actually he's kicking the hat just about straight upwards but it, like, but because the hat has the same horizontal velocity as him, it's actually following this parabolic path. So it goes up and over and kind of follows along with him. And then because when he slides in, due to the friction between him and the ground, uh, it going into the base, he slows down. And so that gives the, the hat the chance to catch up with him and actually surpass his foot where it would naturally come right back down to and strike him straight on in the head. It actually looks like it's pretty painful. So we're going to put this gif, I think, with the blog post with the site. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, and there's actually a Wired article that, that talks all about this. Um, it's, it's like a really it's a really neat effect. And there's like all these YouTube videos showing uh, showing other things like like, for example, if you just have like a little cart with a little tube on it and the tube just like spits a ball upwards as like as the cart is sliding along it spits a ball upwards and then catches the ball again and so you can kind of like see from this video that like the ball you know just like if you're on a train and the train's moving and you throw a ball up you then can catch the ball again because the ball has the same horizontal velocity as you and the train and so it's traveling along but if somebody was on the ground they would see the ball travel this parabolic path now i've done my best to explain this over the radio though i would totally forgive you for not really following what i've been saying i've been trying to kind of give a description of it so yeah we're going to put all this image on the on the blog and you know you can learn about it but think of that when you see this this viral gif Right. You can, I mean, if you like baseball, if you like slapstick comedy, if you like physics, these are all great reasons to look up this GIF. So it will be out there all GIF, over the internet. GIF, whatever. I don't whatever know. It's just a G. It. Those are two sounds. <laughs> uh, all right. So that's our baseball story of the week. Uh, yeah. And Should we take a break before going to chaos theory or no, we've only got 13 yeah. minutes. Let's, 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 let's talk about right chaos in. theory. I mean, we can be a little chaotic because of the nature of the subject. Uh, Some uh, of our shows are, are pure chaos, although I would more say that are they pure chaos in the conventional form of the term or the mathematical form of the term? No, I think in the in the conventional form. So, well, so, okay, do you want to say the, right. the conventional def- or the mathematical definition? Right, so chaos is actually, uh, it has a formal definition in math and physics, 
And what we mean by chaos is that it's really hard to predict what's going to happen down the road. Uh, it means that no matter how carefully we set up our experiment, say we have an experiment with, on a pool table and we want to hit a pool ball and we want to bounce it against the wall and it's going to rattle around the box a few times and it's eventually going to stop somewhere. And that's an experiment where you would think that if I set the ball in the same place and I hit it at the same speed in the same direction, then every time that ball is going to land in the same place, which it actually does. A pool table is really a not very chaotic system. But it's, what, very, it's very deterministic. Yes, it's deterministic, which means that the same initial conditions lead to the same result. The ball mm -hmm. being hit in the same way lands in the same place. But all, you can make a very small change and make that system chaotic. Mm -hmm. And all you would do is make one of the walls round. If you make one ah. of the walls a little bit round, then if, imagine a, a ball hitting a round corner. It really depends, like, how it hits it, what angle it bounces off. It's not, no longer a flat wall where it's just going to bounce off, like, at a normal angle to w the way it came in. It could bounce off in a lot of different directions that will change a lot based on a small change in the ball's initial velocity. So what, that, what, the, and what ends up happening is that after the ball has bounced on the round corner a few times... It's in a random place. You Because inherently, as even as an expert billiards player, you cannot hit the ball exactly the same. You can hit it pretty much the same each time, but these tiny variations in how hard you hit the ball will end up producing drastically different results as far as where the ball is. And that's what chaos is all about, is that small changes produce radically different results. Right, right. So like the formal definition, just to, just to reiterate, is any system that is totally deterministic. So given an exact initial condition, we can then know exactly what's going to happen later. If we know where everything is, then we can actually predict it. So like a lot of people maybe connect, think of like quantum physics when they think of chaos theory. And they're actually very different. They're very different things. There's ways in which they can come together, but they're, they're not automatically linked. In fact, chaos theory is, you know, very, very deterministic, whereas whereas um, quantum theory is very probabilistic. It's, it's different. Right. Whereas with chaos theory, what you have are systems where if you change the initial setup just a little bit, you're going to get totally different results. And this is this is Brian's billiard, rounded billiard uh, uh, example. Right. We know exactly, like we know all the equations that happen when a billiard ball bounces against a surface. We could, for any one bounce, we could tell it bounces against the corner and then it goes off this way. We know exactly about that. There's no quantum like probability about what might happen. It's not like we're uncertain about what might happen. It's that little changes produced radically different things. So the classic example of a classical problem that's inherently insanely chaotic is the weather. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a reason that when I read you the weather 15 minutes ago, I told you that it's probably going to rain on Saturday or Sunday, one of them, but uh, don't get your hopes up too much. And you know from experience that whatever someone tells you about the weather on Tuesday probably won't make that much sense by Saturday. It's like things have changed a lot. And that's because we can only know so much about the state of the atmosphere at once. Mm -hmm. It's like we sort of sample, well, where are the cold fronts and where are the warm fronts and what's the wind everywhere? And we know that pretty well. And maybe that level of detail is enough for us to say, well, tomorrow on Wednesday, the weather's going to be like this. And on Thursday, it's probably going to be like this. But on Friday, little changes in the wind. Maybe you thought the wind was completely north and it was actually a little bit northeast or a little change produces a completely different thing. So maybe there will be a thunderstorm on Friday or maybe it will be sunny and you don't actually know and there's no way of really knowing. 
And in fact, um, the amount of time for which the behavior of a chaotic system can be effectively predicted depends on three things, all of which Brian just mentioned. Uh, how much uncertainty we are willing to tolerate in the forecast, how accurately we're able to measure its current state, and the time scale depending on the dy- dynamics of the system. And so basically, like those are when it comes to weather. So how much uncertainty are we willing to tolerate in the forecast? That's basically how, how wide of a range are people comfortable with when they're thinking about on Saturday, like what's the temperature variation going to be? How, how far off of the prediction are we willing to, are we willing to accept from our forecasters? And then how accurately are we able to measure its current state? So a good example of that is like, okay, we, we can know to a certain level of accuracy, like the cold fronts over here, the warm fronts are over here. It's this time of year, all that kind of stuff. But if we actually knew perfectly where every molecule was and what everything was going to do, then we could actually determine the system. It's just actually uh, computationally impossible to do that. Well, that's, that's true, but that actually leads to an interesting point in that there can be such small chaos means that a really, really tiny change in the beginning of the system leads to a drastically different result. So if I knew all the molecules, where every molecule of gas in the Earth's atmosphere was at any given moment, I would be able to know the weather really accurately. And that would last for a while. But it turns out that things like supernova exploding like billions of uh, billions of miles away or light years and light years away and uh, little atoms that are moved a little bit at the edge of the universe <laughs> actually have effects that change the weather over the time scale of weeks. How do we know that? Because cal- you can calculate these things. <laughs> it's actually amazing. Like you can do a tiny calculation to look at like how okay. if if there's like a little atomic perturbation over New Zealand mm. and that's the only difference between having a thunderstorm on Friday and not, uh, you can actually, you can measure, like, how long do we know about, you know, whether thunderstorms will happen. And it's amazing how short it really is. Like, there's no feasible way, even with the best computers, even with knowing every molecule on Earth, uh, that you would be able to know the weather in a month. You just can't. Yeah, so, like, the, la- the last thing, the time scale, depending on the dynamics of the system, that's basically, like, why we can pretty accurately predict the weather for tomorrow, And the next day, uh, but, you know, Saturday, uh, not that great. A 10-day forecast, not that great. (laughs) And it doesn't really really matter how much information we have because we're never really going to have quite enough. Right. Um, I mean, unless we really had everything. Um, There's a really great quote uh, that I, you know, snagged off of Wikipedia where uh, this guy Edward Lorenz says what chaos is to him. When the present determines the future, so it's a deterministic system when the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. So essentially, if you don't know, if you only have an approximate model of the current state, you can't approximate the future. Like that, that like, let's say you know it to a certain percentage of accuracy, you're not going to get that same percentage of accuracy a few days down the line or a certain time amount. It's actually going to be way different and way crazier. Right. This has a lot of implications for science as far as like repeating studies. Mm-hmm. It actually, if you're working with a chaotic system and you have, you publish a paper that said, I did this and then this happened, then you want other people to check you and see if you're right. Well, unless they set up their experiment in exactly the same way as you with all the exact same things in place, they might not get the same answer because chaos will spread out 
what happened in your experiment and what happened in their experiment based on small differences. So it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a big problem. It's a very, it's a very interesting problem. I mean, it's very interesting uh, numerically. I mean, there's things like traffic models are chaotic, and of course, those are incredibly important to our daily lives. I mean, for for both our you know, mental health and our safety, those are really important. And I mean, the better we can know weather and climate and predict hurricanes, things like that, incredibly important. Um, There's also really simple systems that uh, express chaotic behavior. One example that me and Brian know, sadly, extremely well from our uh, qualifying exams is the double pendulum. Um, So a double pendulum is basically when you have like a very simple pendulum is just you have a rod uh, or yeah, you have a st- you have a rod with a weight on the end, and then the top the the top of the rod you know is just hooked into the wall. It's it's it is uh, able to freely rotate, but from one place on the wall. And then at the end of that rod, you have the same thing again. You have another rod uh, with a weight on the end. So that's what a double pendulum is. And if you just start that double pendulum from an initial condition, you can calculate it. I mean, we had to do this in our in our qualifying exams. We had to um, like actually do run the equations through and calculate calculate uh, that that system. And so it's a very classical classical mechanics problem in physics. However, it's also a very chaotic system. The the initial location of where you let that pendulum go. Uh, it does all these crazy moves, and it really can vary extremely by its initial conditions. And this may be one of the better, very simple examples. Yeah, exactly. It turns out that's one of the big mes- messages of chaos is you hardly need any complexity to make things chaotic. Yeah. Like, of course, the weather. There's so many atoms in the atmosphere. It's like a crazy amount of stuff. Of course, it's hard to predict. But mm-hmm. two, like a pendulum with another pendulum on it, that's already too hard. Mm-hmm. Turns out it is. Yeah, chaos doesn't mean, need much. And that's why we're saying things like when we say our shows are very chaotic, they are chaotic in the sense that we colloquially mean where they're very crazy sometimes. They're very all over the place sometimes. However, it's not that the initial conditions, the beginning of the show, so drastically affect the end of the show. Right. We planned more or less to end the show about now. Yeah. Which is more or less what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, there's one thing before we before we sign off this. I actually read uh, a really great book a little while ago called The Three Body Problem. Um, and I'm not going to be able to do justice to the author's name. So I'm going to spell it instead. Instead, it's a Chinese author. Uh, I think it's Liu. L-I-U. Um, oh, yeah, Brian, you can do this. Uh, Xixin. C-I-X-I-N. Oh, it's uh, Liu Cixin. Oh, I was close. Um, maybe not that close, <laughs> uh, but he is that, that book won the Hugo award and there's actually a movie coming out in July in China. Um, and there's a lot of really in- interesting things with chaotic systems. And when the three body problem that is referred to in the title of this book is when you have, um, a very classical gravitational system. So you have three planets, uh, or three stars that are all rotating around each other. That's a system that is extremely chaotic. Thank you for listening, and thanks again to WPRB and the Princeton Council for Science and Technology for their support, and to Jeff Snyder for all the excellent music we played in the podcast. As always, thank you so much to David XMA for editing the show and to our wonderful guests who have taken the time to speak with us every week. Thanks especially to you, the listener, for your curiosity and drive to learn more about our universe. I'm Brian Krauss, and my co-host is Stevie Bergman, and you've been listening to These Vibes Are Too Cosmic.